So for the past few weeks, we've been in this series going through the book of Samuel. First and second Samuel were originally one book in the Bible, and so we are following along with this and trying to kind of dig into it to figure out what it has to say to us today. Now, there's some stuff I put in the app, I put in the note sheet, and uh, you can find it if you want. It's reviewing the previous couple of weeks, but I don't have enough time to jump into all of that stuff, so I'll just have to give you a quick little narrative summary of where we are. There's this guy named Samuel who comes on the scene, and he's the first person in a long time who's willing to listen to God and tell other people what God said. And so God's like, cool, I have someone who's going to be a spokesperson for me. We'll go ahead and use it. So God starts talking to the people again through Samuel. One of the things that happens is Samuel appoints a guy named Saul to be the king. Samuel knows that these people are just absolutely hopeless when they don't have a good, strong leader. And so God says, I want you to appoint Saul to be the king. Part of that is because the people were begging for it. And so God gave them the king that they wanted in this guy, Saul. Tall, handsome, everything you would want in a king except for the fact that he was a coward. And so as a result, they picked Saul, they made Saul the king. And then in the next couple of stories, we find ways that Saul just he sometimes gets it right. And when sometimes, it's actually just one time he got it right. And then all the other times he's trying to protect himself. And today we come to the story where finally we meet like the main character of the book of Samuel. Ironically, the main character in Samuel is not Samuel. The main character is David. And so when we finally come to chapter 16, we meet this guy named David and we learn a little bit about him. But you need to know that the narrative story of today, chapters 15 and 16, is giving us God's final straw with Saul. When he finally says to Saul, okay, I'm really done with you now. And when David gets anointed to be the king. So Saul goes down, David is rising up. That's the narrative arc of this story. But I've told you for the past couple of weeks, for, the, for this entire series, that what we are studying here is not just the history of what happened in Israel. What we're studying is trying to identify how each individual person in this story is pursuing something, and there's an overarching story of someone who's pursuing them. It's God. God is pursuing people. And in this story, even though the narrative arc is Saul making another mistake and God rejecting him and David getting appointed to be the new king, and even though that's the narrative arc, the real story of chapter 15 and 16 is really all about God. God shows up more in these chapters than in a lot of the other chapters that we've seen. And more than that, we hear God's heart and we learn things about God internally that are, one, very uncomfortable for us, and two, so immeasurably necessary for us to understand. So these two chapters are really about God. And so as we go through these chapters, I'm going to comment on the narrative arc that's happening, but we're also going to dig into some of the things that go on with God in the sort of behind the scenes of the story. God, the one who is pursuing people through what we read. And along the way, we're also going to tackle some of the most difficult and uncomfortable concepts in the entire Bible. Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, does not start on a happy note. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, 
I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Okay, starting all right. Sounds, sounds pretty good. God's going to give him a message. What is God's message? It says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And so, because I just read that out loud, we are going to pause there for a moment and deal with this. Because we live in a society where the even mention of the idea that someone would be commanded to go and put to death children and infants and men and women almost indiscriminately. These are things that cause people to reject the Old Testament. These are things that cause people to reject God. They will say, if God is so good, then how do you explain these stories where God commands people to just do this indiscriminate killing? And it's a very uncomfortable, very weird place for us to be for those of us who would say, oh no, the Old Testament is telling us about the one authoritative God of the universe who loves people. And then you come across passages like this. So what do we do with them? Well, let me first give you the historical context of this verse. First, let me show you from Exodus chapter 17. We read this in verse 14. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and made sure that Josh and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on there? Well, he goes on. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. See, what happened is, as the people of Israel had left Egypt, they made their way, they were making their way to the mountain of God where they were going to receive the Ten Commandments and the other laws. The Amalekites attacked them, just, just, ambushed them, attacked them. And God said to them at the time, he said, because you've attacked me and because you've attacked my people like this for no good reason, I am going to get rid of you. I'm going to blot your name out. I'm going to completely destroy the Amalekites in retribution for this thing that you have done. Now, we are now talking about it's it's like almost 500 years later. Almost 500 years later when we get to the story in 1 Samuel. And they're still around. The Amalekites are still around. But that means that 1 Samuel 15 is a fulfillment of this thing that God said back in Exodus. God was so intent on it that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he made sure that he repeated this command to the people of Israel. Let me show it to you again. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. It says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you to possess an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Do not forget. Now, that is, um, that is an incredible challenge to those people. And God says, when you get to the land, 
the first thing you do after you get settled is go eliminate all those Amalekites. Now, granted, again, that sounds very, very out of line with our modern morality. In fact, I want to actually highlight and specify what I think we all feel internally when we hear passages like this. See, we have a morality hierarchy. And when I said the passage, when I read the passage where it says, go and destroy the Amalekites, part of you was like, eh. But when I got to that line about killing infants, more of you were like, yeah, that's just the way it is. And so I'm going to specify, I'm going to highlight for you kind of our moral hierarchy that we have. I'll just put them all up here on the screen. When it comes to Old Testament violence, we are disgusted by the thoughts of killing. But we're additionally disgusted when those who are killed are innocent. And we're additionally disgusted when it seems to be about nationality or ethnicity. And then we're additionally disgusted when it's children. But the reason I put this up here, and I know it's kind of difficult to read, but the reason I put this up there is that I specifically want to highlight that our morality is exactly in the opposite order for what it has been through most of human history, for most human cultures. Throughout most of human history, throughout most cultures, you cared almost nothing if a child died. If a child died, that was no big deal. Kids died all the time. Killing an infant was even easier to do because if you didn't want the kid, you could just kill the kid. So killing an infant was nothing. Having a child die was also not much at all. I mean, child they can't really do much anyway. Then killing someone based on their nationality or ethnicity, of course you would do that because they're the other people who shouldn't exist. We're the people who are right. Those are the people who are wrong. Of course we would kill the nationalities that are different from us. And then if someone is innocent, well, really, we don't really care about innocent. In warfare, no one is innocent. Everybody is guilty. If you live in that town where these other people are, then you're just as guilty as them. And yeah, even the top one. We're disgusted by killing, but you know, some people, it's different. Like, for example, a king. You probably wouldn't want to kill a king because if you could capture a king, that's much more advantageous to you than if you killed the king. If you killed the king, you've got no proof of your authority over the other kingdoms of this world. But if you captured him, you could parade him around and do all kinds of things. In other words, the morality of the ancient world and the morality of human history is exactly opposite of your and my morality. The big question is why? Why have we developed a morality that says the most precious life is that infant that we would want to save? How have we developed a morality that so highly values life that we value all life, and that we so highly value life that even the meaningless life of an infant we consider to be so precious. How have we developed such a different morality? The answer to that is God. See, not everybody throughout human history has had God's word. Not everybody through human history has been able to read or hear from God. 
Not everybody in human history has been a follower of God. But God, way back in the days of Noah, gave us the fundamental principle about human life. This is from Genesis chapter 9. It says this, God says to Noah, for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. See, the point here is twofold. God says on the one hand, all human blood is precious because all humans were made in the image of God. And so any human blood that is shed is a bad thing because all human beings have been made in the image of God. But if one human sheds the blood of another human, then other humans are responsible to take care of this human who shed that other human's blood. And that is because in the image of God, we also have the authority of God. And so in the image of God, it is our job to stand up for that one whose blood was shed by taking care of this one who shed that blood. All of us intrinsically feel this. We feel the sense of justice. We feel the sense that revenge should happen somehow, even if it's the collective efforts of a group of people known as a government that takes action. But why am I going into this detail? It's because God is the one who says... Because my image is in human beings, you need to value human life and deal with judgment when judgment is necessary. Okay, so based on all that, what I want to do is I want to highlight for you kind of a a secondary chart of values and just to highlight a few specific things about our relationship to this moral dilemma that we have. And it's going to sound like justification. It's going to sound like I'm trying to defend God. It's going to sound like I'm trying to make you think God isn't as, this passage isn't as gross as it feels. And so depending on your perspective, this might not work for you, but hopefully it will. Let me show you some things. First of all, if God really is the creator of the universe, all-powerful, and he's the one who put his image in people, then his, justif- his judgment needs no justification from us. If God makes a judgment about a person or group of people, then there's no questions that we can ask. And yet still, there are some good things that we can understand. First of all, earthly life is not the highest good. Earthly life is not the highest good because earthly death is not the worst thing because there is an eternal God who has eternity in mind. And there is an eternal God with eternity in mind who can make human beings eternal too. And because human lifespans can go into eternity, human life and human death are not as high and as low as we tend to think of them. There are eternal issues that we need to deal with on either side of that. But then finally, there's no actual innocence anyway. All of us are guilty in front of God for a variety of things, even if that thing is just the fact that we were born into a sinful human condition and have all the marks of sin on us. Bottom line, none of us are innocent, and yet God still for some reason chose mercy. There's one other thing I want to say about that. 
Do you realize that the entire reason we have the morality we have today is because we are in the heritage of those who have followed God. We are in the heritage of those who have read his word. We are in the heritage of those who have listened to what he said. And we are in the heritage of those, most of all, who have followed Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who transformed all of our modern society. Jesus is the one who added the concept of loving the little children. Jesus is the one who added the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is the one who added all of these concepts of human dignity on top of the fundamental everyone's made in the image of God. Jesus is the one who added all of this other stuff on top of it that we would understand we are to love everybody. The bottom line is the reason we are disgusted by Old Testament genocide is Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for the teaching of Scripture, we would not be disgusted by these things. And so anyone who says, hey, I can't trust the God of the Bible because he's a God of genocide, is a person who doesn't understand that it is only because of the Bible that you hate genocide. But that puts us in this weird dilemma. How is it that there's a God who seems to be so good in some ways can ask for such judgment to be applied? And the bottom line thing that I have to offer you is just the simple awareness that God is both. God is both a God of judgment and a God of grace. God is both a God of judgment and a God of mercy. And my responsibility is to understand the seriousness of God's judgment when he steps in to judge and to be overwhelmingly just thankful for the grace that he shows me. But we've only covered three verses, and there's a lot left. So we have to get back into the story. And so let me jump back in. We're going to start at verse 7. This is the one spot where I skipped a couple verses, and I don't know why, because it was just a couple verses. But anyway, uh, back to verse 7. says this, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Oh, no. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag the king. And the best of the sheep and cattle, best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now, I just got to clear the air on this. Saul is not doing anything that is in any way noble. Saul is not doing anything that is in any way noble. Did you notice he did not spare Agag because he's sparing the king, because he's showing mercy to the king? He's doing exactly what I told you people back then would do. He killed all the women and the infants. He killed all the children. He killed all of the men, whether they were soldiers or not. He killed them all. He literally killed everything that he didn't think was valuable. And he kept Agag the king because if he keeps Agag, he can parade Agag. See, Saul is not doing anything noble here. What he is doing is he is serving himself. Just like we've seen before. That's all he's ever about. Just serving himself. 
But more than that, it's actually rebellious because he is directly going against God's word. Skip ahead. We're now at verse 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Oh, I just want to shake my head and sometimes I want to find Saul and just punch him. Because this, this is just so, so egregious. It's not that he violated God's command about the, the war. He then went deeper. He violated commandment number two. He built a monument to himself. He's not worshiping another idol. He's asking other people to worship him. A monument to himself in his own honor. Man, Saul just is only focused on the next thing that will help him. Verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. (laughs) Have you? (laughs) Saul... I, I, I can picture Saul in my mind as a six-year-old. Like, that's how I picture Saul in my mind, you know? He, he's done all this stuff that's just completely bad, and then when Samuel shows up, Saul is like, Hey, Samuel, hey, I did everything God asked me to. And Samuel's response is priceless. I love this, verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul, you did everything you were supposed to do, right? So why do I hear sheep? Saul, you did everything you were supposed to do, right? So why do I hear cows? Saul, you did everything you were supposed to do, right? What's that? You know, it's this picture. And you think, oh, Saul would be like, okay, so you caught me. You caught me. I, <laughs> yeah, I saved some stuff. Sorry about that. Let's go kill him now. You know, whatever. But no, this is what Saul says after that. I mean, it's just, it's just even worse. Keep going. Uh, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. So he's blaming the soldiers now, throwing them under the bus, backstabbing. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Oh, there we go. Now he's found a religious excuse. They spared them so that we could make a sacrifice to the Lord, which by the way, notice he says the Lord your God to Samuel, because he's trying to emphasize that Samuel, we're doing this for you. Samuel, we're we're doing this because we want to honor your God. And we just had all these sacrificial animals hanging around just until you got here, Samuel. Here you go, Samuel. You can do all the sacrifices you want now. This is all for your God. So he's throwing them under the bus. He's sort of acting like it's for Samuel's benefit. He's pretending to be religious. It's just terrible. But we totally destroyed the rest. Did you? What about that king around the corner? Keep going. Verse 16. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. I still want to know what tone of voice Saul used when he said, tell me. Was it like, tell me? Or was it, tell me? 
But anyway, Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I added that, sorry. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Again, throwing them under the bus. He did mention Agag this time, but just kind of, you know. But throwing them under the bus, blaming Samuel somehow, and pretending this is a religious devotion. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Pause there for just a moment. Samuel said something really interesting there. He said, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings or sacrifices or obedience? And what's interesting is that when I was a kid, I always thought that sacrifice and obedience were the same thing. Because God is the one who told them to sacrifice. God is the one who told them how to sacrifice. And therefore, doing a sacrifice was obeying, right? That's what I always thought. Sacrifice was obedience. So what is this passage all about? And Samuel is identifying something that you and I know intrinsically now, but needed to be made especially poignant to Saul. You and I know that there are all kinds of people who do religious obedience who are not obedient, who are not the people who really follow. See, I imagine that your mom, when you were a kid, and she said, clean up your room, I imagine that your mom never intended for you to burn your room to the ground, okay? And then be like, okay, mom, clean. You know, I'm imagining that your mom also never intended for you to go into your bedroom and take all the stuff that was in your bedroom and throw it out the window. Got it, mom. Clean. I also imagine that your mom did not intend for you to go into your bedroom and kindly and neatly put everything back in its proper place while under your breath cursing her out. Because, see, there is a far different thing between doing the thing and what is really wanted. And I think what Samuel is saying here and what your mom would say to you at the end of that travesty is, I don't really care about the stuff. I just want a relationship with you. Now, I know some of you don't have a good relationship with your mom or your dad or any family member for that matter, and so this, this analogy might not work. But the person who loves you is the person who would say, I would much rather be in relationship with you than to have you just do what I've said once. 
See, that's what God is saying here. God said to Saul, not that he was upset that Saul was going to do another sacrifice improperly. Did you hear that? At the end of this little phrase in verse 23, it said, because you've rejected the word of the Lord. Word is an intrinsically personal thing. When you say a word to someone and they respond to the word that you've said, that is an intrinsically personal thing. God is not saying, I want you to check off all the boxes. He is not saying, I want you to follow all the rituals. He is saying, I want a relationship with you. He's saying, I want your heart. He's saying, I want to be able to speak and you'll hear. That's the thing that Saul missed. It's this relationship piece. And so, let's keep going and see how things turn out. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And it's like, okay, good. Saul is about ready to apologize. He's about ready to confess. He's about ready to repent and turn around and become the king he could be. And then he says this. (laughs) He says, oh, I just lost it. He says, I was afraid of the men. And so I gave in to them. I'm the king of the land. I've defeated this other army, and I'm afraid of my men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Even there, he's protecting himself. The only reason he's saying he's sorry is because he thinks that's the thing that's going to get him back into God's good graces. He's like, no, I want to worship God. I want to worship God. Let me, come on, Samuel, let me worship God. Just forgive me. It was their fault. Again, blaming other people, not even taking responsibility. Verse 26, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. And here in that, his last request to Samuel is not, I'm really serious. I'm really sorry. Please do forgive me. Please come and help me change my ways. His last request is, Samuel, for one more moment, can you just keep up appearances so that the people around me can still think that I'm the king? God has rejected him. But Samuel, can you at least pretend for just the rest of the day? So Samuel went back with Saul. And Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. And notice this. Agag is not killed because he's an Amalekite. Agag is not killed because God has a vendetta against every single Amalekite. Agag is killed specifically because of his own guilt in this moment. He's a man who has killed children. 
And so now Samuel says, I'm going to take your life. This is exactly what Genesis 9 had said. And this is the only government in this place at this point in time with enough courage to act in the way that it should. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul until the day Samuel died. He did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So I'm going to pause here and give you kind of a summary statement for something that we need to understand about God through this story. You've seen it a number of times. It's been repeated a few times, but I want to just make sure it's clear to us. God rejects those who are self-serving and regrets giving them influence. This is God saying, I am rejecting Saul as king. He is a guy that we have seen repeatedly as putting his own self-interests first. We saw that last week. We see it again this week. Saul is continuously all about himself. And God says, I'm done with you. You can serve me or no one else. And because you're serving yourself or maybe even pretending to serve these people around you, I don't even know, but because you're not serving God, because you're not in a relationship with God, God says, I'm done with you. God rejects those who are self-serving and he regrets giving them influence. If you know anyone who is self-serving and has influence, there is a God who feels just as bad about their influence as you do. If there is a person who is self-serving, then there is a God who will reject them as much as you want to. And God says, I'm done with you, Saul, and I'm sorry I made you king. Now, that's a very interesting thing. I want to pause there for just a little bit. What does it mean that God regrets something? When I regret something, that means I want to go into the past and change it. I want to undo what I did. Regret for me means I made a wrong choice and I wish I could make it the right choice. That's not what it means for God. God is different from you and from me. God has the ability to see the end of his decisions before he makes the decision. God knows the influence that he's going to have on the universe because he sees that all from beginning to end. God has the ability to see through all eternity, to understand through all eternity. He knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. In fact, he knows that when he does this, a certain thing will happen and he's okay with that. Here's the thing about God that we need to understand. When God makes a choice, he is not regretting the fact that he made the choice, but he is regretting the path that that choice played out. You see, I'm 100% convinced that God made the right choice when he picked Saul. I'm also 100% convinced that Saul made a number of wrong choices through his time. Saul was given an absolutely perfect opportunity to be an absolutely great king. He had everything going for him. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. He was the right guy from the right tribe. He looked good. He was tall. He had all kinds of things going for him in all kinds of ways. And then to top it all off, God gave him his own spirit, put God's spirit on Saul in power. Saul had everything he needed to be the king that he was supposed to be. And Saul consistently chose the wrong thing. Saul consistently chose himself over stepping into faith in what God was asking him to do. And as a result, it's because of Saul's selfishness that God could look at Saul and be like, oh, I'm so disappointed in this guy. 
See, God doesn't regret in the sense of he wants to go back and change his decision. In fact, Samuel just told us in this passage that God doesn't change his mind. Let me show you these two verses that we've read, but I'm going to show them to you side by side. Here they are, verse 29 and verse 35. Samuel says, He who's the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. And until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here's another way I want you to expand your idea of who God is. God is both the person who, ch- who does not ever change his mind and the person who wishes things worked out differently. God is both the person who sees all of eternity and knows that his choices were right and also the person who walks with us personally in the midst of our circumstances and hopes we do better. God is both the person who sees eternally and walks with us personally. If you're taking notes, go ahead and jot that down because I can't think of anything that is more important for us in our day-to-day life. God knows what he's doing and he's with us in the midst of the moments. So God is a God of wrath and a God of grace. God is a God who sees eternity and spends time with us in the moment. And then in chapter 16, we get one more picture of God that I think is cool. And then another picture of God that is astonishing. Here we go, Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And now, now we begin to get the solution bubbling to the surface. Saul was selected in part because he was everything the people wanted, and God thought he could change Saul's heart. God tried to change Saul's heart, and Saul wouldn't have anything to do with it. See, even from the very beginning of the Saul story, we were told that the prophecy that came to Saul was, God will change you. And Saul never actually changed all the way. He resisted God. But now God's doing the opposite. He's not looking for the person who's on the outside is good. He's looking for the person whose heart is already good. And then the outside and all the other stuff that his leadership will need, God will take care of that however he can take care of that. But God is now looking for the heart first. And he tells Samuel, we're not going to pay attention 
to whatever it is on the outside of this person. We're going to pay attention to the heart, which reminds us of the passage that we've spent most of these weeks talking about, at least briefly. Back in chapter 13, verse 14 said this, Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. We know that what God was really all about is he wanted to find someone who wanted to find him. God was after someone who would be after him. God wanted to find another person who shared a similar heart to him. God says, we're going to build this next relationship not on how pretty you are. We're going to base this next relationship on whether or not we have a heart connection. So God is searching for someone who has that kind of heart. Verse 8 then Jesse called Abinadab and had him come in front of, pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Which, by the way, I think this is interesting. When Samuel met Saul, do you remember what he was doing? He was wandering around the countryside looking for some lost donkeys, right? And when, when he finds David, David is tending sheep. One of them is actually doing their job well, and the other one is not. Saul was not able to keep track of donkeys, and David is tending a bunch of sheep. So one of them's already a better leader in my mind, but let's just keep going. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Keep going. He, so he sent for him. And had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Well, that's good. He's also pretty darn attractive too. So that's just icing on the cake. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Did you see that? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. We've only seen that phrase a few times. Remember, we covered this a couple weeks ago. We saw that phrase back in the day of Samson, the long-haired, powerful Hercules dude from the book of Judges. We saw it show up three times for Samson. And every time Samson had the power of God on him, he did something selfish. And then we saw the power of God come on Saul. And early when something happened, when the power of God came on Saul, Saul praised God in worship. And then the second time Saul did something right, he actually did something to save other people. And it was like, yes, now this is good. But we have just come across Saul being rejected by God. And so now the Spirit is coming on David. And it's like, wow, maybe David is going to be the hero that we desperately need. But that raises this question. Why did God pick David? On the one hand, I want to say that David was good, and so God picked him. But I know that's not true. Because none of us are good. All of us are messed up. 
The difference between Saul and David, I don't think, is that David was somehow intrinsically a better person than Saul was. I think the difference between God and the difference between David and Saul is that God could see one of them had a heart that was in the Godward direction, and the other one had a heart that he could not go there. The reason I know that is that David spent a lot of time with those sheep. And while David was out with those sheep, he did a lot of alone time. And in his alone time, he did a lot of songwriting. And you can look at the songs that he wrote, and they're all just amazing with regard to his longing for God. Take a look at this from Psalm 16, verse 1 and 2. This is something David wrote. David said, "'Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge.'" I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. See, David was just as empty as Saul was. But David understood something Saul couldn't grasp. David understood that to fill his emptiness, he could long for God. And Saul thought to fill his emptiness, he needed to be more of himself. David was a man after God's own heart. Saul was only in it for himself. And so God, the thing you need to learn about him is that he is in pursuit. God pursues the one who pursues him. God pursues the one who pursues him. And of course, we could end with that because God wants relationship. We've seen that time and time again. God created us to be in his image. He wants to have a connection with us. He thinks it's terrible whenever someone violates the things that God is about. And so finding David, a man after God's own heart, is a beautiful thing. And God is pursuing him. He wants a relationship with him. But there's one last bit of this story that we need to cover. And it is, to me, just about the most astonishing and the most beautiful part of this whole thing. Let me read it to you. It says this in verse 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Quick comment on that, by by the way. Um, A lot of us had the wrong idea about God and his relationship with the world of evil. Okay, Because a lot of us had this idea that there are two armies in the universe. There is God and his army of angels, and there is Satan and his army of demons. I don't know where we got this idea, who came up with this idea first, because it's not in the Bible. But we've got this idea that there's God and his army of angels, and then there's Satan and his army of demons, and that they're in this constant battle with each other. And the problem is that they're kind of at a stalemate, and that they're just always sort of fighting, and neither one of them is actually ever winning until one of these days, God is finally going to actually pull out the stops and win against this enemy force. The problem is, as I already said, that stuff isn't in the Bible. What's actually in the Bible is that there is God. And under God, there is a world 
of spirituality and spiritual beings, all with different names. I mean, there's cherubim and seraphim. We don't know what these things are exactly. We just know there's some names. Some of them have personal names like Gabriel and Michael. We've got some of those names showing up in Scripture. One of them is called the Prince of Persia at one point in time. Jesus uses the word Beelzebub because it was popular in his day. Um, The word Satan is actually just the noun accuser that shows up in the book of Job. Devil is a word that means just a kind of an evil force or an evil agent. Uh, and Jesus refers to the devil as the prince of lies or the father of lies. And so you got some of these sort of other names going on. But the thing you have to realize is that no one, no one, no one is at God's level. God is above and beyond and absolutely in absolute control. He created the universe. All the forces, all the powers of the entire plane of existence are in his hands. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mysteriously three in one, we have no idea beyond our imagination. God is God who is God, and he's God, God. King of kings, Lord of lords, in charge of everything. And if he tells someone to do something, whether that thing is an angel or prince of Persia or Gabriel or Michael or Beelzebub, if God tells that thing it needs to act, that thing needs to act. And the word evil might mean that God commissioned some entity that thinks of itself as evil, but more likely it means that God sent some agent of his to do something punishment-wise towards Saul. And from God's perspective, this is judgment. From Saul's perspective, it probably felt like evil. But the challenging thing for us is that we want to put a bunch of different sort of moral um, clarity statements that make sense to us on the activity of God and not accept the fact that there is a God who is the God of both judgment and grace judgment and mercy. And so passages like this are the kinds of passages that shake us up because they should shake us up to remember God is actually really and totally and completely in control. Whatever he wants to happen, happens. So just one more reason to follow him. But keep going. It says this, Saul's attendants, and this is gonna, it gets beautiful, Saul's attendants said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul says to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the liar. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I'm pleased with him. Wherever, whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And I cannot express to you 
how amazingly beautiful this situation is. It's just beyond imagination because picture this. God rejects Saul. And when he rejects Saul, he takes away the kingdom. And when he rejects Saul, he takes away the spirit. And then God goes to David and he says, David, I'm going to give you the kingdom. And David, I'm going to give you my spirit. And then God sends David back to Saul. This is absolutely mind-blowing to me. God takes everything away from Saul. But then God gives it all to David. And then God sends David back to Saul. To serve Saul. To enter into Saul's courts and the, the one who's supposed to be the next king is now living in servanthood to the current king. The one who has the Spirit of God on him is now living in servanthood to the one who no longer has the Spirit of God on him. The amazing grace of God combined with the humility of one person willing to walk in it results in a picture here that I think Saul was oblivious to. But in one little illustration, God is both judge and grace. In one little story right here, God is both the one who sends the punishment and the one who sends the relief. Listen, I don't know what you think about God, but I want you to at least grasp this one duality. That God's wrath is real, but so is his grace. And if you're a person who's going through life like Saul, you're a person who needs to be afraid because God's wrath is real. But if you're a person who can turn your heart towards God like David, if you're a person who can say to God, God, I want to move in your direction. I want to long for you. I want you to fill up the gap in my heart. I want you to fill up the hole in my life. I want you to fill up the emptiness that I feel. If you're a person who can turn toward God, then God will shower you with his grace. And you can be afraid of his judgment, but you should also be grateful for his grace. Listen, if you want to take that step of transitioning your life from being afraid of God's judgment to entering into his grace, and you need some help with that, come up to me afterwards, tap someone around here on the shoulder, and just be like, hey, do you know what he was talking about? And if that other person does, then you can spend a little moment in prayer together, praying for each other. And if that other person doesn't, then both of you come up and find me or someone else, because you're going to find people in this place who know how to do that, or right now, where you're sitting. You can just simply say a prayer in your heart and say, God, I want you, I want your grace. Make me more like David than like Saul. Help me follow people like David, never like Saul. And God, walk with me as I walk through this life trying to be like David rather than Saul. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. 
and his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.